time. I don't know if you've noticed, we have a common theme today. We've been in Deuteronomy a lot already. What an amazing book. Uh, Deuteronomy is filled with wonder. Oftentimes we think of Deuteronomy as just kind of an extension of the Law of Moses and a repeat of a lot of the things from the Law of Moses, and so we skip over it quickly sometimes in our reading, but what a, what a beautiful book it is and so much instruction for us. Uh, before we turn to the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, let's turn to our God and just ask for His blessing on our time in, in the Word. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these, these ancient words that were written down on ancient pages that you inspired, that your Holy Spirit moved men along, and as they wrote these things, whether it was Moses or others, uh, Lord, you, you gave them words that would endure, uh, words that would not fall off, fall away like, like we do. We, we're like grass and we wither, but your word remains forever. And so as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you would teach us, you'd help us to understand these things, and that we would apply them to our lives in a way that we would be changed that we would be filled with your Spirit, and that you would be glorified in us as we walk in obedience to you. Amen. You know, as we look at Scripture or anything that we write or say, you know, context is, is it dictates how you understand conversation. Have you ever spoken or written something down and, and someone else received that message, but they, they drastically misinterpreted what you had to say because they didn't have the right context? Have you ever been there? And then you find yourself kind of redefining, oh, and what I meant was, or this is what happened. Uh, oftentimes it happens between husbands and wives, and, and we say something and, and then realize right away, oh, I, I think I forgot to share the context with you, and we, we get ourselves in trouble uh, a lot. You know, if, you, if you turn to a newspaper headline from the West, and it said, Massacre in Texas. Redskins slaughter cowboys on their ranch. Uh, what would be your first thought? You know, it's horrible. But if I gave you some context and told you that this was a newspaper clipping from Thanksgiving 2020, and it was on page two of the sports section, that might change how you interpret that, right? Context is really important. Yeah, now you're going, oh, it's Dallas Cowboys. They lost 41-16 to on Thanksgiving to the Washington Redskins, who now changed their name to the Washington Commanders. All that changes, that context changes things a bit. But when we read the Bible, it's important to understand the context in which things happen and, and when those things happen. Uh, there's a lot of strange things, bizarre things that have taught and been taught about the Bible over the centuries because many people just don't take the time to understand the context. And so as we're going through the story, my prayer for our church is that we would have a better understanding of how these things fit together than when we did before that we would have a better context for understanding all of Scripture. And then as you, as you start walking through the forest and, and venturing down some of these trails that we're not going to cover over this 31 weeks, you would have a bigger context, a bigger structure for, for how that fits into the whole thing. Before we get to the main passage today, I'd like us to take one step back this morning and take a moment to just survey the context of, of when we are at. We haven't been talking about dates and chronology a lot um, and I don't want to bog you down with a whole bunch of numbers uh, through this series, even though chronology is kind of my hobby. But um, specifically, I'd, I'd like us to get a look at the timeline of where we're at in the Bible so far. And so let's just start with the first 12 chapters of Genesis. 
Uh, conservative biblical scholars often discuss the genealogies in Genesis. So from Adam to Abraham, we're, we're looking at anywhere from about 2,000 years to several thousand years, depending on how you read those genealogies and understand those. But for simplicity's sake, but let's just say that we're looking at about 2,000 plus years uh, for, for, today's, for today's conversation. And so the first 12 chapters take place over at least 2,000 years. And Abraham was born in 2166. You have to remember all these dates. Isaac was born in 2066, 100 years later. And then Jacob and Esau, the twins, were born in 2006 B.C. And so if you did some quick math, uh, the first 12 chapters of the Bible contain at least a couple thousand years. And then the patriarchs are born over the next 200, and the rest of the Old Testament and the years between the Old Testament and New Testament are going to fit into the next 2,000 years. And so the patriarchs are about as far before the birth of the Messiah as we are after it. Kind of strange to think about us being after Jesus Christ when we think about the amount of time that's taken place since then. And you go back that same distance and you come to the life of Abraham. That's, that's where we're at. And and where Abraham stands as far as the New Testament is concerned. And so when the book of Genesis closes, as you know, and we, as we've seen, the Israelites are, are living in Egypt, where they stayed for about 400 years, and they had become slaves. We saw that God raised up Moses as their deliverer, and I gave you a date of 1446 B.C. as the year of the Exodus. And so... This is 720 years after the birth of Abraham. It's a lot taking place in one book of the Bible, isn't it? You're looking at thousands of years of history over these 50 chapters. Um, but do you see how much history we've covered just in that one book of the Bible? And, and, and now contrast that, the entire book of Exodus, which we just finished, uh, except for the period where Moses is growing up in the first chapter, covers uh, the first couple of chapters, it, it covers about one year. Everything except for the first couple chapters of Exodus takes place over one year's time. They, uh, in the year 1446 B.C., uh, you're going to have the ten plagues, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, the three-month journey f- f- to, uh, to Mount Sinai, and they're going to camp at that mountain up to the beginning of the next year. And, and what's the third book of the Bible? We covered it last week as well. What was that? Leviticus. Good. Um, this is the book where God demonstrates his holiness to the people and he prescribes sacrifices. He talks to them about their calendar year, their holy days, how they're supposed to worship him in the tent that they just set up on the first day of the year, this new year. And the whole book of Leviticus is given to Israel and, and that's going to span one month. So we're, we're getting shorter and shorter here, aren't we? And so thousands of years, one year for Exodus and then one month for the book of Leviticus. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1 through 12 takes place over those thousands of years. The rest of Genesis and the slavery in Egypt takes place over the next 720. Exodus takes place in 1446, and Leviticus is given in one month. Uh, we're going to start the book of Numbers today, and, and Numbers is called Numbers because there's a census that takes place at the beginning of that time. And, and if you jump to the end of the book, what do you find? Another census that takes place at the end of that period of time, a period of 40 years. And um, there's a lot, though, that happens between those two numbers, isn't there? Some of you may have read numbers for the first time this last couple of weeks as we've been doing our read-through. And you might have been surprised to find some of the stories that were taking place in the book of Numbers. You may have come to Numbers before and thought, oh, this is just a book about census records. But it's much more than that. 
but someone decided to give the fourth book of the Bible the name Numbers, and so a lot of people uh, gave up, give up on reading it by the end of chapter 10, and they never make it to the, to the action in the book. And so, but consequently, do you know, some of you might know this, do you know that in the Hebrew Bible, that the, 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 the names of the books of the Bible are not inspired, God's word is, but the names are, are given to us by the church and by Israel, but in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the names of the books of the Bible are different, did you know that? They don't call this the book of Numbers in, in, in Israel. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Bible, are named by the first word of each book. And so Genesis is just simply called in the beginning. And Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible, is called in the wilderness. And so that, that might help in understanding a little bit what's happening uh, in the book of Numbers rather than just some uh, census records, right? All right, so we've practiced our keywords for several weeks, and so we're just going to jump right to it. And here's your pop quiz. I'm not even going to give you any more review. You've got this. Ready? So we have seven key words so far. They are good, good. All right. We'll keep on working on that. We're going to keep on adding to it. So you might write those down, keep practicing that. Uh, and my goal with that is that it would, it would give you a little bit of a structure uh, of how things flow throughout the Scripture and and as you're reading different parts of the Bible, you'd be able to understand how that fits in. But all of this brings us to our eighth key word, and that is wandering. The first ten chapters of Numbers take place in less than three weeks. But the rest of the book of Numbers is going to take place over almost 40 years. Uh, we'll get to why that is here in, in just a little bit. But I want you to think about everything that's happened over that last year. First, they watched the strong arm of Yahweh, their God. And they saw how God delivered them over the course of ten plagues that were poured out on Egypt. And they saw how God judged the, the gods of Egypt. They were redeemed by the Lord from their slavery. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He taught them obedience in the desert. They were saved the same way that you and I are, by God's grace, through faith, as they were looking forward to how God was going to deliver how God was going to provide for their sin. They believed God, we're told. They received eternal life. And that started this beautiful relationship between God and Israel, between Yahweh and His people. And over that year, as they traveled to and they camped at Mount Sinai, several miracles took place. Let me just name a few of them. Uh, one of the first mir miraculous events that occurred for them was that God lit their way. I mean, they're walking through the desert, and there's no, there's no street lights, right? God lit their way. There was a pillar of fire starting at the Red Sea, and this pillar of fire went before them. And during the day, it was a cloud that gave them shade, but at night, there was this pillar of fire that lit them their way along the journey. And we're told later, later on that this pillar of fire, it stayed with them, and it was with them for 40 years. For 40 years as they camped throughout the wilderness. Can you imagine how awe-inspiring that would be? I mean, to, to wake up and, and see this cloud that's there every day. To go to bed at night under the light of this, this pillar that, that lights your camp. Can you be, imagine being the surrounding nations, wandering the hills and the mountains nearby and seeing this, this light that probably showed for, for miles upon miles upon miles? 
Secondly, they went out into the desert and they quickly discovered that they, their food had run out. Big problem, right? They ever go camping and realize that you left the igloo back at, in the garage? Oops. Imagine being a, an entire nation and your food runs out. And so God again provides a miracle. And when they come out of their tents in the morning, they found manna on the ground. Manna means what? What is it? What is it? And so they called it, what is it? And so they ate manna for 40 years. And again, for 40 years, God gave them bread. They just woke up in the morning, and they literally went out and they scooped it off the ground. And they fed their families for 40 years. And after the people set out from Mount Sinai, Numbers 11 tells us about this other amazing event which, in which God calls 70 of the elders of Israel. And the Spirit of God, it rested on those men. And they began prophesying and teaching the people of Israel. And we don't spend a lot of time in Numbers, but interestingly, um, there, several books of the Bible make reference to this event. They, they mention it more than, than even the, uh, the pillar of fire, I think. Nehemiah, Isaiah, Haggai, uh, they all make reference to this event, and they highlight this event in which the Holy Spirit came down on the leaders of Israel. And it's mentioned right alongside of giving manna and the crossing of the Red Sea. It's one of the last miracles that took place right before they arrive at the borders of Canaan and are, and are commanded to go in and take the land. And, and so right before all this happens, there's this amazing event in which the Holy Spirit came down and, and worked through the, the leaders of Israel. And then, of course, the people had come to Mount Sinai earlier on. And there, God gave His Word to Moses. And He had tablets of stone and and the giving of the law, and the people saw how good God's Word was. And they were just given a glimpse of God's power through many miracles, through God's presence that was there on the mountain. What a year! Can you imagine experiencing a year like that? Camping out in the wilderness and, and seeing all these amazing, miraculous events and displays of God's power. But I need to highlight three events that took place, first of all, in chapters 11 and 12. Three times we're told that the people complain. Right after all these things has happened, after this year of deliverance from Egypt and God's appearance in the wilderness as leading by a pillar of fire, the Holy Spirit coming down, right after all these things have happened, and right before they're ready to go into the land of Canaan, we read three events in which the people complained. The first is briefly mentioned in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11. Again, if you're looking for us, we're in Numbers chapter 11, the fourth book of the Bible. And in verse 1, it simply tells us, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord, of Yahweh, about their misfortunes. And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And so they're, they're barely three days away from Mount Sinai. Three days away from all these things that they've seen, how God provided food, He provided water, there was fire on the mountain, the, the tabernacle's bit, built, and the, the presence of God comes and dwells on it, and then He leads them into the wilderness to go to the promised land. And within three days, they're complaining about how hard it is. Ever been there, done that? Kind of get comfortable with life, and then things get a little tough. Maybe you're getting older and and body doesn't work as well as it used to. Maybe you're experiencing sickness. Maybe it's just some trials have come into your life. Financial hardships. And it's easy to get comfortable 
where we're at, and then as soon as things start getting tough, as soon as the road's a little long, we start to... You might even say, why is God doing this? Three days in, the people started to grumble. And God judged them for it. Not much more time goes by, and verse 4 it tells us, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, oh, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Can you imagine the gall to complain about literal bread that has come from heaven? How God provided while you're journeying out in the desert and you're on this journey and you don't have to go raise crops. You don't have to kill the animals that you're taking with you. God just provides bread for you every day and, and now you're thinking about how good you had it back in Egypt. You see, sometimes like in verses 1-3, through three, we find ourselves in a situation like Israel where we've become comfortable and the environment that God has given to us becomes something we get used to. And so then when things get difficult, we complain about our misfortunes. <laughs> Poor me. Sometimes, like in verses 4-6, through six, we find ourselves dwelling on the past. The Israelites, they wept aloud. Did you hear that? They, they wept out loud because they were thinking how good they had it in the past. They remembered all the abundant food that they enjoyed on the Nile River. And they kind of forgot that they were slaves and that Pharaoh was throwing their children into the river. Oh, forgot about that part. But sometimes we find ourselves doing the same thing, don't we? We find ourselves susceptible to the same kinds of temptations. We experience all of God's grace. We have life in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Your, your life has been transformed from the inside out. But like the Israelites, there's this temptation to dwell on our lives before Christ. Our mind starts to dwell on how good we had it. Forgetting that, oh yeah, we were slaves to sin. And the wages of sin is death. And we experience that day to day before we receive life in Christ. And so it becomes easy to complain, or at least there's a temptation to. And we have to guard ourselves against that. But there's a third event that takes place in chapter 12 where Moses' own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, that they complain against Moses. Uh, specifically, it says that they were complaining because of the wife that he had taken. And so for some reason, and maybe they used the wife as an excuse to complain about his leadership, or maybe there was something in their relationship with his wife that caused them to complain about his leadership. Uh, whatever it was the case, they, they complain about Moses, about his wife, and, and they complain about, um, you know, hasn't God also spoken through us? It's almost, well, why does he get to be the leader to get to, to do all these things? And how, and how come he's the focus of all the attention? Because, you know, we've prophesied too. And so they compare themselves. And again, as you read through chapter 12, you see that God brings down judgment. And, and this time a cloud comes down as they're there at the tabernacle. I think it was at the tabernacle. And, and the, this cloud comes down. When the cloud raises, what happened? There's Miriam. White as snow, covered with leprosy. I mean, her skin is falling off of her flesh. Flesh is falling off the bones. It's, it's advanced leprosy, and it's, it's obvious. And, and so Moses 
pleads to God, please save my sister. Please don't let her die. Please. And so she goes and sits outside the camp uh, and, and fulfills a period of cleansing. And, and God heals her. Each of these instances, God shows mercy. Each of these instances, we see Moses interceding on behalf of the people, praying for them. On each of these occasions, God judges the people, Moses intercedes, but God shows mercy. But it's important that we guard ourselves because you and I, though you have the the Holy Spirit indwelling you and your life has been transformed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a temptation in spite of everything that God has done to complain, to grumble, to murmur even against our God. It's important that we would guard ourselves against those same temptations. You're going to face the temptation to grumble and complain when you've become complacent in good circumstances. Things get a little tough. You'll face temptation to complain when your thoughts become absorbed with the past. And you'll face temptation to complain when you begin to compare yourself with other people. Maybe you compare yourself with their circumstances or their gifts or their ministry. I just want to encourage you, guard yourself. And remember the lesson that we have from the book of Numbers. Remember the lesson that, that we learned from Philippians where Paul charged us. He said, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the darkness, in the world, excuse me. But also notice an even greater failure that takes place on the part of the Hebrews. Look at chapters 13 and 14. We saw three complaints, but now let's look at ten bad reports. The journey from Mount Sinai to the border of Canaan, it's not a long journey. We were in a small group this week, and Brian Schmidt pointed out it takes 11 days, according to the first chapter of Deuteronomy. 11 days from Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, is that right, Brian? Or, yeah, I get it. Um, 11 days from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea where they were camped in in Numbers 13. And in order to encourage them, in order to encourage the Israelites with the promise of what was ahead of them, God commands, commands them to send a representative from each of their tribes, a leader from each of their tribes. 12 spies go into the land and they're commanded to bring back some of the fruits of the land that the people would experience firsthand what they were going to later experience when they go into the land. God wanted them to see that it was indeed a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And so those 12 spies, they went in, they came back, they brought back some of the fruit. And in Numbers 13.23, let's look at the text for a little bit. Numbers 13.23, it tells us that they came to the valley of Eshol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two of them they also brought some pomegranates and figs in verse 27 they gave the report and they told him we came to the land to which you sent us and it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit when's the last time you went down to randy's and you found a cluster sitting there and you had to get two carts to carry it out of the store can you imagine I mean, to find that kind of produce, you have to go to Craig's Greenhouse. Sometimes you just can't keep up with it, can you? It just grows and grows and grows. 
This is the land that God had promised to Abraham all those years ago. Hundreds of years they've been waiting. It was a promise that was inherited by the patriarchs. God had foretold that there was going to be a period where they were going to go go into Egypt, a foreign land, and they were going to be slaves. He foretold that. But now He's delivered them through that and from that just as He promised. And now they stand at the border of the land that God promised Abraham hundreds of years ago. Ready to go in. Looking at its produce. Looking at these grapes and these pomegranates. Hearing the testimony of these, these, these spies. But then ten of the twelve spies told how the cities are fortified. They told the people of giants. They told the people that the land devours its inhabitants. Those are the words they used. Devours its inhabitants. And in Numbers 14, we learn that there at Kadesh Barnea, says, then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, and I want you get, this isn't just the complaining that we saw earlier on. This isn't just the bickering and, and the, the calling into question why Moses is our leader that his brother and sister did. I, I want you to hear how far this goes. All the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. A few verses later, we're told that the people were ready to stone Moses to death. They were at the moment. They were ready. Not just talking a little bit about it a little bit. Not just thinking about maybe... They were ready to stone him. And it would have happened if God hadn't interceded. And we're told that the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people at the tent of meeting. And Yahweh said to Moses, how long will this people despise Me? And how long will they not believe in Me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Might have been tempting for Moses, huh? Yeah, I I get to be the leader of this. Wait, never mind. I'm already the leader. (laughs) Moses doesn't do that, though, does he? He prays for the people. He says, God, please, please. The nations are watching and they're seeing what you're doing through Israel. Don't. Don't destroy your people. He prays for them and God pardons them. And I, and I want you to notice that. God pardons them. And though there's going to be consequences, I, I don't want you to get this idea that you know, he, he pardons them, but not really. <laughs> you know, okay, I won't kill them, but pff, done with those people. No, He pardons them. The Israelites were still the people of God. And I firmly believe that in terms of eternal salvation, the Israelites were the people of God. They didn't lose their salvation just like you don't. 
It's not something where God says, oh, boy, you really blew that one. You're out of here. You are a child of God. And the Israelites, they were children of God. And though there were going to be consequences, their salvation was intact. Having been saved by faith, they were still the people of God. But there at Kadesh Barnea, you have to understand, a decisive event took place. And it's decisive in terms of what happens over the next several chapters, the next couple books. And it's going to be looked back on and referenced throughout the whole Old Testament. So you're going to see this event talked about when we got to the book of Hebrews. Do you remember Hebrews talking about this? Hebrews talks about this very event that happened at Kadesh Barnea. And so that context is going to be very important for understanding a lot of things throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, their progress toward entering the land of promise, the land of rest, it, it just it came to a halt. Several hundred years of waiting for God to fulfill His promise, and right at the cusp of it, they reject it. Never mind. We don't want that. After everything that God had done for them, they decided they are going to go back to Egypt. And so God pardons them, but what comes next is terrifying. You see, God tells Moses that He pardoned the people, but because they had put God to the test and because they refused to obey His voice, not one person over the age of 20 years old was going to be allowed to enter the promised land. Not one, except for Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that had given the good report. For 40 years, the people are going to wander in the wilderness. And by the end of that 40 years, every single person that was over 20 when this happened, except for Moses and, and excuse, excuse me, except for Joshua and Caleb, everyone's going to die. They are never going to receive the blessings that had been promised. They are never going to experience firsthand the blessings that God intends for his people. We're told that the ten spies died from a plague and there at Kadesh Barnea only Joshua and Caleb lived. Now, you'd think, you'd think right at this point, what's going to happen? Lord, we're sorry. We'll obey you. We'll do whatever you tell us to do. Right? You'd think that the people would get it at this point. And so when God speaks, you listen. But pay close attention to the example set by the Israelites who had now been cursed by God to die in the wilderness. Verse 39 says, When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. They rose early in the morning. And they went to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are! We'll go up to the place that Yahweh has promised, for we have sinned. You get the idea? We're sorry. We repent. We'll obey you now. <laughs> yeah, we kind of messed up. But hey, we're going to listen now. So let's go. Let's Take the land. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for Yahweh is not among you. Ooh, that's, that's new, isn't it? Over and over and over through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, there's a phrase that we see over and over and over again. God promises, and He says, I am with you. I am with you. Go and do this, for I am with you. Obey me in this, for I am with you. And there's this beautiful picture of this relationship that God wants with His people. And, and now Moses says, don't, do not go up, for 
Yahweh is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned back from following Yahweh. The Yahweh will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. And so the Israelites had fallen away. And, and, and it's important to understand that it was impossible at this point to avoid the consequences of their, the, their lack of faith. Hebrews is going to really capitalize on that. They would spend 40 years wandering because of their sin. And, and really that's what we find in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers starts at the beginning of that 40 years where a census is taken. This disobedience takes place and several things happen in the wilderness and we read about their journeys over those 40 years and then we have a census at the end of those 40 years and, and those census records are the bookmarks, the, the bookends that, that um, surround the book of Numbers itself. My friends, we need to guard ourselves against that kind of unbelief. The kind of unbelief that was shown at, Israel by, at Kadesh Barnea by Israel. Because like the Israelites, your salvation remains intact. But we have to understand, you need to understand the incredible tragedy that can take place when we rebel against God's instructions. You have to understand the consequences that result from sin and the loss of the incredible blessings along the way. Because you can have experienced God's blessings over many years, but but for some, there comes this point where God says, I'm done with, I'm done with this. And, and salvation remains, but oh, the blessings that you miss out on. The opportunities to be used for God's kingdom along the way. And those consequences. Well, that generation died in the wilderness after 40 years of wandering. But briefly, I'd like to highlight the last of the five books of Moses. Again, English Bibles have a strange, long name. We call it Deuteronomy. You all use that word in normal speech? How many of you guys go walking, walking down the street and you're talking to your kids and you say Deuteronomy? Outside the context of a book of the Bible, right? Uh, basically, the word just means second law. It's Latin, okay? And, and, and it, it stuck. If you read through Deuteronomy, you might start to think to yourself that this sounds familiar. I, I, I seem to have read some of these things somewhere else. And that's because you have. Back in Exodus and Leviticus, you see a lot of the same things that are covered in Deuteronomy. And that's because Deuteronomy is a collection of words that were spoken by Moses to a new generation. Forty years have gone by since they were camped at Mount Sinai and they received the law. Forty years, and now a new generation who's grown up in the wilderness... Many of them were born in the wilderness. They're about to enter the land of promise and inherit the blessing that their parents had forfeit. And so what happens is Moses recounts the journey. And, the, and he takes them through their journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And he talks about all the things that have happened over that time. He talks about the wonders that God performed along the way. And, and then he talks about the law. And, and what we find are several speeches, several sermons, if you will. And Deuteronomy is a collection of Moses' sermons, his speeches to the people of Israel at the end of that 40 years. And so I, I can't remember the exact period of time that Deuteronomy has, if it tells us. 
But, but all this is taking place right at the end of the 40 years, right before they go back into Israel. And Moses is preaching to the people. And, and so a lot of it is he's talking about the laws that they'd received in Exodus and the Leviticus. And so that's why you're going to recognize a lot of those things, but sometimes there's some variation. It's because Moses is teaching them how to practice the law and, and what it looks like in real life and how some of those things change as they go into the land itself. Deuteronomy is Moses' appeal to a new generation to impress God's Word on their hearts and to encourage them to walk in a manner that they will enjoy the blessings of God rather than reject those blessings like their fathers did. And I'd like to just close uh, with a passage from chapter 4. Uh, listen to the summary given in chapter 4, verse 32. Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, chapter 4, verse 32. Listen to the highlight of Moses' sermon. He says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire? as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for Himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh is God, and there is no other beside Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it in your heart that Yahweh is God in heaven and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for all time. My friends, there is no God like our God. Even beyond what He did for Israel. I mean, as great as these things are, Hebrews, what, is he, what was the message of Hebrews? You have something better than what Israel had. Everything we've just discussed about what happened through the wilderness and how God, God taught them and showed Himself, God has given something to you, Christian, that far exceeds what the Israelites were given. He not only dwelt among the Israelites in a tent, but later He came and He dwelt among us in the flesh. Jesus actually became a man and dwelt among us. Jesus showed us God the Father. And He died on the cross to pay for our sins once for all. You don't have to make sacrifices every day, every year anymore. No more blood of goats and bulls. Jesus did it once for all. 
Know that He is God. And there is no other. My friends, if you've not turned from your sin, if you're here today and you go, I don't have this relationship with Jesus. And if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ to receive eternal life, I, I want you to know that the same God who performed all these mighty deeds thousands of years ago for Israel, He chose to be with them. And He's the same God who offers to you a relationship to be with you. And so choose Christ. Believe in His name for the salvation of your soul. And my friend, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you might, you, then, then <clears throat> excuse me, then we need to heed the instructions of Deuteronomy and keep His commandments, knowing that, that His Word is not death. Sometimes we think of Deuteronomy and the commands in Scripture and the Bible, and we think, uh, don't we? We don't say it, because that wouldn't be right, especially not in church, but we think it when we go, uh, I'd rather go spend some time on my phone than read my Bible today. I'd rather do this than obey that. Heed the instructions of His Word. Even Deuteronomy. Keep His commandments. Knowing that His Word is not death, His instructions are not torment, but God's Word is life. And He has instructed us so that it may go well with us and that our days might also be prolonged on the earth. Oh, that we would love His law and enjoy the blessings that come from a life that is filled and lived with the power of His Spirit. God intends to bless you. He wants you to experience His blessings as you, as you know Him and experience Him. As you know His Word and, and you live it out. He didn't give us these instructions and His law so that we would be miserable. Taking all the fun away. But He knows how He made you. He knows how life works. He knows what sin does and what the consequences of it are. And so He seeks to spare us of that. And yes, we live in a fallen world. And that's part of the journey. Is learning in the midst of this fallen world how we walk through that and how we walk with Christ in the midst of that. And as followers of Jesus Christ, how we experience His blessings now in this present world, even as we long for our home in the world to come and look forward to the day when He returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what You have to teach us here. We thank You for the example of the Israelites. We, we do thank You for the example of their faith where it was exhibited. We thank You for the example of the failures that, that have been accounted here for us. I pray that we would take stock of that. That we would look at our own lives. That first of all, we would examine and, and see, do I know Jesus? Do I have a relationship with this God who wants to do life with me? Or am I still walking in my sin and doing things my way? And Father, I pray that as we evaluate our own lives, if we have that relationship, I, I pray that we would, that Your Spirit would enlighten us from Your Word, that Your Spirit would show us areas where we're doing some of the same things as the Israelites.
Maybe it's complaining. Maybe it's grumbling. Maybe it's just a loss of hope and vision. Maybe it's a disregard for your word. But might we learn these lessons and walk with you and experience the incredible blessings that come with that relationship as we look forward to our eternity with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.